Let us again look to God in prayer. Gracious God, as we prepare once again to turn to your word for us this day, written in the Holy Scriptures and incarnated in Jesus Christ, we ask that you would give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts, that we would welcome what you reveal to us and do what you would ask of us. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, the living word, amen. Our second lesson today comes from the book of Judges. We're going to be spending some four weeks in the book of Judges looking at the life of Gideon. And we start in chapter 6. I'm reading this morning verses 1 through 32. Let us listen for the word of God. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel. And because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites put in seed, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the land as far as the neighborhood of Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they and their livestock would come up and they would bring their tents as thick as locusts. Neither they nor their camels could be counted. So they wasted the land as they came in. Thus Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord. When the Israelites cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not pay reverence to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not given heed to my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. And Gideon answered him, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. He responded, But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The message, Eugene Peterson's version says, I am the runt of the litter. Then the Lord said, But I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor with you, then show me a sign that it is you who is speaking with me. Do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a kid and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. 
Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Help me, Lord God, for I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abbeyesrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father, and cut down the sacred pole that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. In proper order, take then the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the sacred pole that you have cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord commanded. But because he was too afraid of his family and of the townspeople, he did so not by day, but he did this by night. When the townspeople rose early in the morning, the altar of Baal was broken down and the sacred pole beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this? After searching and inquiring, they were told, Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. Then the townspeople said to Joash, bring, us, bring out your son so that he may die. For he has pulled down the altar of Baal and cut down the sacred pole beside it. But Joash said to all who were arrayed against him, will you contend for Baal or will you de defend his cause? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been pulled down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he pulled down his altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As I indicated previously, we're starting today a study of the life of Gideon as it is recorded in chapters 6 through 8 in the book called Judges. Uh, I've always been drawn to Gideon. Uh, in fact, I think I've told some of you, in the junior department of my home church in Canton, Mississippi, there were two paintings on the walls of the junior department. One was of Daniel in the lion's den. And the other was of Gideon and his band of 300 descending the mountain into the valley of the Midianites with torches and trumpets in hand when they routed the Midianite army. So from a young boy, being a young boy, I've been drawn both to Daniel and to Gideon. In fact, I love the name Gideon. When we learned that our fourth child was going to be a boy, I suggested to Tita, my wife, that we uh, think about naming him Gideon. And she said, well... I think we should name him after your brother David and then after my uncle Preston. And so we comp uh, comp what did we do? Compromise. Yeah, we compromised and named him David Preston. <laughs> and then uh, when David was born, when he was about, I don't know, five or six years old, he was adopted by an older couple in the church we were serving. And the man was a judge in town, Judge Jack Ralston and his wife Jenna, and they became wonderful, in fact, grandparents for David. And when David was a little older, they gave him a puppy, a golden retriever puppy, for Christmas one year. And so he had to choose a name. And I told Tita, I said, what about Gideon? 
This is a judge, Ralston. Uh, Gideon was a judge. That would be a great name for the dog. She said, I think we should name him from the Ralstons that gave him to us. So we compromised once again. And Ralston lived with us for about 10 years. <laughs> At any rate, uh, just to be clear about judges, judges in the, in the Bible and judges in society, the judges in the Bible are different kind of judges than we are ordinarily accustomed to because they don't really serve judicial functions. They're more like military leaders, charismatic people that are raised up by God in a time of crisis, and they prove to be the people that deliver God's people from whatever the threat is at the time. In this particular instance, it's the Midianites. Now, these judges are strange characters. For the most part, it's hard to identify with them. They do some weird things. They're just odd people altogether. Um, but Gideon is a notable exception. I think as we look at the life of Gideon, we will find many aspects of his life that are very familiar, hauntingly familiar to us, I would even say. And so I'm looking forward to us doing that in these weeks together with Gideon. I want to set the stage uh, historically here so that you will understand what's going on. If you have your own Bible open to Judges 6 or just to the start of Judges, I'm going to give you a little design that will help you interpret every story you read about in the book of Judges. You can just draw a circle. If you don't have your Bible with it, don't draw, uh, don't draw in the pew Bible, but <laughs> you, you can use your bulletin. Uh, just make a circle, make maybe five little arrows coming around the circle, uh, clockwise or counterclockwise, it doesn't matter. But I want you to see the cycle that takes place in the, in the book of Judges. It's relentless. Ad nauseum, if you will. Remember five words starting with the letter S. The people sin. That's the first thing. Usually they sin by worshiping a God that they were told not to worship. After they sin, they become enslaved to a people. Following the slavery, they, their supplication, they cry out to God for deliverance. And then there is salvation. God saves them through the work of this judge that is raised up. And then we read there's a time of silence. It may say something like the people had peace in the land for 20 or for 40 years, something like that. If you want to see this in shorthand form, look in chapter 3 of the book of Judges. I'm going to show it to you in, in a short order here. Judges 3 verses 7 through 11. You'll see all five S's here. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, forgetting the Lord their God and worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. There's the sin. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of King Cushan Rashathaim of Aram Naharim. And the Israelites served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. There's the slavery. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, there's the supplication, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, and there's the salvation. They saved. And then the next verse, 
So the land had rest for 40 years. There's the silence. So there's the five blessings. Look at the very next verse. The Israelites then again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that is repeated over and over again. The only difference is in the chapters we're going to be looking at, six through eight, it takes about three chapters to cover the whole cycle. And we're going to be looking at that, that cycle But as this chapter 6 begins, you see that the people once again have sinned. They've been worshiping the gods of the people of the land. And they're suffering the consequences of their rebellion. They're living in fear and oppression because this is what's happening. The Midianites, this fierce nomadic tribe, they would arrive from the Arabian desert. And they were joined by people from the east, the Amalekites, and and people called the people from the east that lived in the Syrian desert. So you had the people from the Syrian desert in the northeast and the people from the Arabian desert in the southwest coming together, invading Israel. And they did it at the time of harvest. They would let the Israelites do all the planting of the crops, and then they would descend on the land and just take all of the produce, all of the harvest, and all of the animals they could find. So this is how they lived. And then when they had used up everything they could use, use up, they left only to be returned on, at a later time. And so these Midianites made periodic raids into Israel and to other lands, uh, taking advantage of their power and their strength. And they were a strong people. As a matter of fact, one of the things the Midianites had, no other peoples had. And this was camels. This is the first time in recorded history that camels are used in warfare. Well, the Israelites had no match for the camels. The camel was like the stealth bomber of our day. There wasn't anything that could go up against it. And so the Israelites would head off to the hills. They would hide in the caves and in the mountains out of sight of the Midianites uh, until the people have taken all that they could possibly take and left, and then they would return out of hiding. So that's what's happening. The people have sinned. The Midianites have taken over. They're enslaved to the Midianites. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And first we're told that God sends a prophet, a prophet who tells them and reminds them of what God has already done. He brought their people out of Egyptian captivity and brought them into this land, gave them a land, told them how to live, that they are to worship no other gods. In spite of that, they continue to rebel. They continue to suffer the consequences, which is their enslavement. So, as the book opens, Gideon is being called to be that deliverer. And this is almost humorous to look at the call of Gideon. Because the angel of the Lord approaches Gideon. And addresses him in these incredible and wondrous words. He says to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. That first thing, the Lord is with you. What do you think Gideon thought about that? He thought the angel must be insane. He says as much, but sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonderful deeds that our ancestors were counted, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? No, the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. And I'm afraid that God's people make that same false assumption today that Gideon make, 
made. We assume that if we are basking in prosperity and health and happiness, if we're experiencing God's love and power, if life is going to suit us, then it must be a sign that God is with us. Am I right? And we assume with Gideon that if we're taking it on the chin somehow in life, if we're experiencing the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, if we're battling grief or depression or poverty or injustice or unhappiness or defeat or humiliation or you name it, then that must mean that God has abandoned us. God is not with us. He has turned us over, if not to, the, to Midian, to some other modern-day oppressor. And so we sit around in our misery and self-pity, feeling rejected by God, and endure the bondage and the humiliation that we brought on ourselves. We turn our backs on God, do the very things God tells us not to do, and then we assume that God can't possibly be with us because of all the evil we're having to endure. I've mentioned the bumper sticker before that says, if God seems far away, guess who moved? Okay? We assume that God must have abandoned us if we're going through these difficult moments of life. Some of you may be listening to me this morning, and if you had the gumption of Gideon, you might like to challenge God as well. You might cry out in anger or in cynicism, Lord, you're not with me. Where are you when I'm going through this? My creditors are at my heels. My marriage is coming apart. I've lost my job or my friends. My kids are driving me crazy. My health is compromised in some way. You can't care possibly. You can't possibly care since I'm going through all of this. And there are countless experiences and instances in life that will, if we let them, distort our vision and blind us to the very presence of God among us. Obviously, Gideon was thinking God's presence meant happiness, success, prosperity, and all of that. The prosperity gospel didn't begin in this country, in our century. It goes back a long way, a long, long way. A wiser Gideon later is going to come to realize the absurdity of this, and he will realize, as others have, that sometimes the stars shine bright, brightest on the darkest nights, and God is never nearer than when we are struggling in some way. Israel's darkest night may have come upon them. Her enemies had swept over her like a flood. Her grain fields had been wasted. Her fig trees robbed. Her vines and olives stripped bare. Her harvest destroyed. And her children are living like refugees, fugitives in their own land. But God had not forsaken them. No, they had forsaken God. And they were living with the consequences of their decisions. And it's into this situation, this desperate situation, that the messenger of God steps in and tells Gideon, the Lord is with you. That was the first message. The second message, he addresses him as a mighty warrior. Well, if it seemed ludicrous that God was with him, in all this despair and difficulty, how much crazier might it have seemed to Gideon to be addressed as a mighty warrior? He may think the angel is mocking him. He may be thinking, here I am, hiding out from our enemies, scrounging around to get enough wheat to feed my starving family, hiding like a common criminal, foraging like a rat for my 
family. Call me a forsaken coward, but don't dare call me a mighty warrior. Who are you kidding here? To be sure, Gideon does not see himself as a mighty warrior, does he? A few verses later, as he seeks to avoid his call, he will confess that he comes from the smallest clan in Israel. He comes from the weakest family in the whole clan. And as Eugene Peterson says, he's the run of the litter. Why in the world would he be God's mighty warrior? Who am I to deliver Israel? So we see that Gideon was not only blind to the presence of God, he was equally blind to the power of God. Gideon had not the vision to see what God could accomplish through a willing vessel. Because when Gideon looked in the mirror, all that he saw was the man he had been. But when God looked at Gideon, he saw the potential there. He saw what Gideon might yet become by his grace. So who tells you who you are? Who is it that defines you? The person in the mirror? Someone at work? Some colleague? Some friend? Who tries to tell you who you are? What you can or cannot do because of your race, your heritage, your intellect, your parentage, your finances? Who is it that determines who you are? Where is your identity? Does it have a divine dimension to it? Do you see yourself as God sees you? Sees you. So many people today are swabbing their cheeks and sending off $99 to Ancestry.com or 23andMe or one of those organizations. When you get the results, is that going to define who you are? You have 23% Scotch-Irish heritage. Does that determine who you are? No. The only one who can determine who you are and give you your identity is the one who created you and the one who in Jesus Christ has redeemed you. There's a great deal of difference between genuine humility and self-abasement. It is as wrong to think too little of ourselves as it is to think too much of ourselves. We human beings are creatures fashioned in the very image of God and we are capable of responding to God's grace. Unlike other animals who only do what they do by design or instinct, women and men are free to make choices. We can rise above the false limits of heredity or environment, and any of us can become an agent of the divine force behind the universe. That is to say, when God lives in us and through us, there's no limit to what we can accomplish. The Scottish poet Bobby Burns was sitting in church one day and saw a louse on the bonnet of the woman sitting in front of her, and he penned one of his immortal poems. I can't read it in old Scots, but in uh, our English it would be, Oh, would some power the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us? It would from many a blunder free us and foolish notion. Well, perhaps. <coughs> Maybe if... We could see ourselves as others see us, then we would be spared the risk of thinking too highly of ourselves. But on the other hand, if we could see ourselves in terms of how God see us, sees us, it would keep us from thinking too little of ourselves and missing on, out on all that God could accomplish through us as individuals, through us as a congregation in this community. 
God saw Gideon as a mighty warrior. And when Gideon came to accept God's estimate of who he was, he became what the angel declared. He went forth in the strength of the Lord. He took an axe in hand and he chopped down the Baal and the Asherah pole. And he almost dared anyone to do anything about it. The source of his strength was the knowledge that God was with him and was using him. Not, as we're going to see in coming weeks, not because Gideon felt that. Gideon still has many questions for God. But simply because God declared that he was with him. Friend, what is God calling you to be or to do as an individual? How does God see you? Does he see you working in that garden? Serving at Hot Dish and Hope? Singing in the choir? Teaching Sunday school? Working for community improvement in a lot of areas and housing and justice? Education? What is God calling you to be or to do? We're tempted to think that God couldn't possibly use us. I don't have any skills. I don't have any talents. There's nothing I can do. If you ever think like that, then open again to the sixth chapter of Judges. Because there you will find a man who's called to be a mighty warrior to save his people that had no experience as a soldier, no personal trait that would distinguish him from anyone else but a man who simply came to believe that this was the will of God for him and that God would be with him to accomplish what God needed to do through him. So my word for you this morning and for us is this. The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Let us pray. Gracious God, give us the grace to see ourselves as you see us and to become the people and the church that we are capable of being by your grace. So indwell us by your presence and your power that we shall be a light to the nations and a joy to our Redeemer in whose name we pray. Amen.